Welcome back to the Mahan McCann podcast, a fortnightly philosophy and lifestyle podcast, helping you think better to live better. This week, I'm very lucky to be joined by Donald Robertson for the second time. Donald is a stoic OG, a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, best-selling author, trainer, specializing in anxiety and social anxiety. Uh, He's written best-selling books like How to Think Like a Roman Empire, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, and now Verissimus, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, which we are talking about in this podcast. And on top of that, we're kind of delving into how philosophy can help you think better, how you can use these techniques to worry less, uh, to feel more comfortable, and to get over false beliefs um, that might be causing you a lot of stress and difficulty. So lots of great insights, great tips in this one. Um, It's all very practical, and Donald is fantastic. I highly recommend checking out his book, Verissimus, which is going to be in the description Um, which is a graphic novel on the life of Marcus Aurelius, but also, in the same vein, packed with useful things and philosophical insights for living a better life. So without further ado, I'll get out of the way. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Boom! Welcome back to the podcast, Donald. Thanks for joining us for the second time. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I mean, and thanks also for Verissimus. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. It was, I again, like I, I saw you interviewed on, like not a big graphic novel reader. I think that's probably the first graphic novel I ever read. Um, but it was class. I really loved it. I think it added a new dimension to the whole, to the philosophy to the story of his life, but also like all the stories around it, which I thought was fascinating. Was that something you found as you were writing it? Like you started pulling in all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I had to do a lot of research on Marcus. really, I've written three, three and a half books. Like I like to say about <laughs> yeah. Marcus really in a role. So the, the yeah. first one is a self-help book. Cause how you think of Roman emperor. So I had to do research on him for that and for other work that I was doing courses that I was writing things. And then for yep, this, yep. I had to do a lot of research more on the kind of visual details. Exactly. I thought I already knew a lot of stuff. And then we're like, I don't know what a Roman legionary's belt buckle looks like in 175 yeah, AD. Like, sure. <laughs> so what do, what do the furniture look like? And so we, we had a lot of like, effort that we had to put into that. And I mean, i give you an example. We, the artist sketched all the um, pages first. And then we got a consultant, and the first thing he said was that the swords were all the wrong length, because uh, Zer had gone <laughs> oh, with no. Gladius. And he said, by this particular point in history, round yeah. about this point, the archaeological evidence suggests that they started using a sword called the Spatha, which is like an inch or two longer, because yeah. it's better for fighting cavalry. And uh, so Zer, the most annoying thing he had to do was go through and ch- change the length of every sword. Like, oh, the most annoying <laughs> oh, thing that no. I made him do. Man, and there's always going to be like sticklers for weird historical kind of stuff that are going to get like all up in arms about it but um it felt very credible to me anyway a kind of cool well a cool one actually that was kind of like a silly mistake that we all made really um was Mm. the 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 guy who's our consultant who's does legionary reenactments and everything right one of our consultants He immediately looked at it, and, he, and some of the panels, the legionaries had their sword in their left hand, and he's like, no, like, it never happened. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, Roman not, legionaries not always use the sword in the right hand. Because you can't, if you're, if you're like, lined up in um, formation, you can't have like one guy who's got your sword shield the other way around from everyone else. Yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and we're like, ah, uh, 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 like, so we had to redo a couple of the panels to switch the sword and shield around. Just kind of, that was also annoying. But yeah, like we, and then after, after writing this book, so when you, when you write books, if you're a full-time author, um, Mm. it kind of gets weirdly out of sync because it takes usually like a year to write a book. Graphic novels take a lot longer. This took like two or three years. Um, But then it's like a while for it to be edited and then to get published and stuff like that. 
So now I'm promoting this graphic novel and talking about it a lot, but since I wrote that, I've also written another book, and I'm now in the middle of doing, like, a third book. Like, so my head's kind of all over the place. So I, f I wrote a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press, which is now in press, um, and that'll come out next spring. But for that, I thought, no, I know loads about Marcus Aurelius. I had to go to Carmentum and I had to do all this research into furniture and clothing and everything. But then when I came to write the prose biography, I thought, actually, there's other stuff that I still don't know, and I need to do even more research to kind of write a slightly more academic uh, biography and um, go into aspects of it that we maybe didn't go into in the graphic novel. So apparently there's always more to, to learn. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, was there any anecdotes that you wanted to put in or things that you found out afterwards that you were like, oh, shit, like, why is this not in the other one? I wish I'd put that in. Uh, <laughs> gosh, I don't know if there's anything that... Uh, we, we put so much stuff in it that, you know, mm. I can't think of anything that I thought, oh, I wish I would put that in. Um, we, and I, we crammed in all the stuff that I thought was, like, really cool. Um, mm -hmm. that we could kind of get in it, like, you know, so I am pretty happy from that point of view. There were bits, the hard thing about writing a graphic novel is that, you know, it's got to be a fairly, it has to be a complete narrative. So if you're writing an academic history, you can say, look, one of our sources says this, another one of our sources contradicts it, and then there's this thing that we think might just be gossip or propaganda, so it's probably not true, and then there's this other bit where there's a gap in the story so if you're writing an academic history you can just tell the reader that right but if you're writing a movie or you're doing a graphic novel you can't do that you have to kind of somehow like gloss over the gaps and resolve the ambiguities and things so that that luckily it wasn't too bad from that perspective and we kind of figured out little tricks so where there's gossip i actually mm -hmm. think in the graphic novel we get to portray it better because we'll just have people in a tavern actually gossiping. And then oh, that allows yeah, us to say stuff smart. about Marx Aurelius mm. that historians don't believe to be true, but is in our sources, right? So then we can go, okay, let's, let the reader decide, right? People said this stuff, like, but it's just talk. Like, and you might think, yeah, that, like, like historians, you might read it and think that, that sounds unlikely to be true. Uh, it doesn't add up, but it tells you something. It, when, when we did that, I thought it tell it adds you something that you kind of lose in a prose biography, which is a stronger mm. sense of what the gossip and propaganda was actually like. So then you might think, why are people saying these things about Marcus Aurelius, mm. like that his wife was sleeping with gladiators and that he bathed in their blood as part of a ritual and all this kind of weird <laughs> stuff that they said? Yeah. Why would they say that? Like, um, yeah. and there are reasons. One reason is that. Um, most of the gossip about Marcus Aurelius um, is basically about casting doubt on the legitimacy of his son. So there's all this stuff about gossip about his wife, and so people think, "Geez, like Faustina sounds really like unfaithful and stuff. Like maybe we should like that or not like that." I think the reason for that is because they're trying to insinuate that Commodus is not Marcus Aurelius' real son to try and, and the preserve his legacy. Yeah, they want, they want, they had a civil war, right? So they're like, that dude's not even his son. Like, he shouldn't be on the throne kind of thing. It's propaganda, probably. Like, there's, a, there's, there's an obvious motive for them to say yeah. these things. Um, and by the way, just a bit of trivia. Like, we have loads of statues of Marcus Aurelius and loads of Commodus, and they're the dead spit of each other, incidentally. <laughs> so they, these guys are like, he's the son of a gladiator. He's not Marcus Aurelius' son. You think the dude looks exactly like him? The dude, yeah, yeah. I've seen the one in the Vatican actually of Commodus and the big statue of Marcus Aurelius where he's on the horse. I think they have one of Commodus with the lion's head on him because I know he wanted to be a gladiator and yeah, kind of yeah. thought he was Hercules or something. There was one well, anecdote the... actually that I, yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, the one anecdote. Say, like the... sometimes mm -hmm. one of the cool. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, one of the cool things about history is the, the relationship between archaeological evidence and textual evidence. Like, sometimes in the text, we read stuff and we think, that can't be true, that sounds like kind of exaggeration or whatever. And then we'll find archaeological evidence that confirms it. So the, we're told Commodus became this raging narcissist and tried to make out that he was a god and 
the incarnation of Hercules and stuff, and you think, is he really that bad? But then we have these statues where he's literally dressed like Hercules, which is as bonkers then as it would be now, like, you know. And so you think, that's in stone. He definitely did it. Like, so, yeah, he was a crazy narcissist. Marcus Aurelius didn't dress up as Hercules, as far as we know. Maybe he did, but, you know, it's, it's clearly his son went around saying, I'm, I'm a god. Yeah, and kind of lost the plot. There was one, my favourite, one of like the favourite kind of side plot things was the Hercules at the crossroads. I'd never heard that before. I thought mm-hmm. that was so interesting, the Hercules encountering virtue. I wonder if you could, yeah, tell people about it because I thought it was brilliant. We call that the Chuck White. Okay, here's a backstory to that, right? First of all, it's one of the most important speeches in antiquity, in, in European history. In a way, it's like, it's certainly in philosophy, it's one of the most important speeches. It's a type of speech called protretic, or exhortation to philosophy. So it's a particular kind of brand of speeches that involve trying to inspire people. Um, I guess we'd call it like a motivational speech today, to motivate people to kind of become philosophers. And it, it's the most famous example of that. And the, the source for it's kind of weird. So we have, it was a sophist who wrote it called Prodicus who was friends with Socrates, and Socrates adapted the speech. And then we have Socrates' student, Xenophon, um, who writes his memorabilia Socrates, like he, everything he remembers Socrates said. So we have Xenophon's uh, record of Socrates' version of this famous speech by Prodicus. Like, so it's like Chinese whispers or something like that. And uh, then a generations later, Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, allegedly picked picked this up and read it and this is what inspired him to go off and found stoicism so it's part of the origin story of stoic philosophy this this mythological speech about hercules it made him want to become a philosopher and he went off and invented stoicism after reading the speech yeah it just it had something to it that so because something i'm always trying to do is like figure out virtue and vice a bit more and it it gave it kind of a visual aspect that made a lot more sense of it than it had in other things do you think that's an accurate representation of virtue and vice this kind of like impulsive gratification versus like effort type thing i hope in a sense i hope not because the (laughs) goddess of vice happens to look a lot like my wife like by coincidence apparently was this, but, this <laughs> the crane of vice then made her look like my wife casey yeah um, I thought maybe he did that on purpose and then just pretended he did. I don't know. He's a, like he's he's a, he's a funny guy. Is it? Like, so I hope it's not like completely literal. Like, but um, it's a it's a great story and there's a lot of philosophy condensed in it and it's kind of filtered through Socrates. So it's kind of like Socratic yeah. philosophy, like like maybe you know despite the fact that he didn't originate it. It, we don't know what it was originally called, um, but it became famous again in the Renaissance. And so there are pieces of music, there are several paintings inspired by this speech in the Renaissance. And it became yeah. known as the Choice of Hercules. Um, and then it got forgotten about again, and now people are kind of like starting to discover it again. It's an amazing speech, because it says, look, buddy, you've got two options. <laughs> Basically, like, either you make an effort to try and f- live a life of principle, or you just don't bother, like, and you just kind of play it by ear and go with the flow, and you'll be guided by, you know, your desire for pleasure and an easy life and all that. Um, and the it, the odd thing, like, it's a paradox, because the, the goddesses, Kakia, the goddess of ice, says, look, you know, if, if you follow my road, then you can live a life of pleasure, can lie in bed all day, you'll be waited on and served by the, the labour of other men, um, I'll make you a king, yada, yada, yada. And then Arate, the goddess of virtue, says, I'm going to give you a heads up and warn you, if you follow my path, you're not going to have any of that. Uh, you have it all taken away from you. You'll be fighting monsters. People will hate you. They'll ridicule you. You'll live in poverty, poverty under the earth. She says, but at the end of it, you'll look back like and how you'll have the potential to view yourself as having conquered and achieved something and become a hero and she said if you follow the life or the easy living of kakia 
you'll be denied the sweetest sound, like which is praise from other people, the lips of people that you respect, and the sweetest sight, which is to look back on your memories and recollect them with a sense of pride. And she says you'll never have any satisfaction. You won't be able to look yourself in the mirror. Like you'll get to the end of life and think, what was the point of all that? Like and Hercules chooses the life of labour, the twelve labours. Like you know, at the end of it, he has to go down to Hades and wrestle Cerberus. Like so, he picks this really, really legendary, the like the most difficult of all lives. And at the end of it, he um, he's made a god. He has an apotheosis, like um, and Zeus uh, turns him, uh, deifies him, and turns him into a god because he chose the hard path. And they. Epictetus talks about this to his students. He says, he kind of refers to it obliquely, which is really cool. Like, he doesn't quote it, but Epictetus obviously knows this. And he says to his students, and just glibly, like, they all take this for granted. He says, look, if if, uh, Hercules had just lain in bed and snuggled under the covers, he wouldn't even be worthy of the name Hercules. Like, you would have forgotten who he was. Like, he wouldn't be a hero. It was only because he went out and was ridiculed by other people, persecuted by them, like, and had to, like, overcome all these obstacles that you you hold him up and and admire him and revere him. So you all admire this guy as a hero, but you would never choose this life for yourself. Like, you'd rather have an easy life. But that means that you're putting yourself in a situation where you're never going to be able to have any respect for yourself. Like, because you avoid facing challenges, the very thing that you admire most in other people. Yeah, that's a like unbelievably powerful message. I think particularly these days when it's so easy to live a kind of to coast or yeah, just play PlayStation and scroll the internet and eat shit food and do nothing really. Um, it still has that same kind of motivational punch. I think it reminds me of Seneca on adversity as well, which I read recently, where he makes yeah. a similar kind of argument. It relate what I relate it to is, is like my background is in cognitive behavioural psychotherapy, and one of the leading state of the art forms of psychotherapy for clinical depression is called behavioural activation. It's the name that we give to it, and it's based around the finding, like it's research based. So we find that people with clinical depression typically do things that are motivated by the desire to avoid unpleasant feelings. Like, so they'll play computer games, they'll smoke weed, they'll drink alcohol, they'll watch movies, they'll lay in bed, and they become withdrawn and more avoidant and more introverted because they're often just trying to kill time or, like, trying to not feel bored or not feel sad. Like, but then if you do that, there's no real sense of value or satisfaction that comes from your your life is spent just avoiding something. And then you look back and think, well, what was the point of that? And it takes an effort, apparently, it takes a conscious effort to replace that with, instead of an away from motivation, a towards motivation, where you go, no, what I'm going to do today is stuff that I actually value, like, you know, and that has some intrinsic value for me. Um, And the way to figure out what that would be would be, again, to kind of look at the things that you genuinely admire most in other people, whether it's real people or fictional characters or historical figures. And when people make that effort to kind of turn their life around and begin and stop doing stuff just to kill time, like and start doing stuff that they actually find gives them a sense of fulfilment, that appears to be uh, therapeutic for clinical depression and some other problems. Mm. Yeah, hey, yeah, I've been doing a lot of work. I start. I remember last time we spoke, we were giving out about academic philosophy, but I've now gone on and doing a PhD. <laughs> in ethics and new technologies um looking at the ethics awesome. of social media so um the yeah. I, it's kind it of practical like but idea. yeah i mean somebody needs to take a look at it because it's a bit out of control but um a lot of that folks seems to hinge on dopamine and dopamine's like the the chemical of motivation pursuit and drive and that the lack of that kind of catches you in that feedback loop again where you're getting all your dopamine from pleasures rather than from challenges um i think there's such an interesting yeah. crossover like philosophically sometimes what we actually value and and, and gain satisfaction from in life is doing stuff that feels unpleasant or painful mm. like mm. you know i we the people that we admire most 
are often people that can endure discomfort or displeasure in order to do something that they genuinely... I mean, if we allow our lives to be motivated by pleasure, like, it's the kind of high... That's the high road to avoidance and withdrawal in life, really. Like, in that, you know, nobody really admires other people for pursuing a, a life like that. And we, we tend... Some people tend to lose self-respect when they do that. Mm. And then, you know, they get stuck in a trap. Um, and it's kind of addictive as well. The, there are many different coping strategies that people use to deal with unpleasant feelings, but the number one most popular one is avoidance. And avoidance takes many different forms. Some of it's like overt, like, you know, standing up and walking out of the room, or like some of it's more subtle, like, you know, la la la, like distracting yourself internally from unpleasant feelings or using drugs or alcohol to self-medicate. And it, it's everywhere, like use avoidance and a life dominated by avoidance is in a sense a life not worth living yeah and that it's a kind of self-fulfilling cycle as well almost like the more you avoid the more difficult it is to actually come back again and start all yeah. over um makes you yeah. snowflake makes you vulnerable like if you like. <laughs> it, it sensitizes yeah. you that makes you more it makes you more vulnerable if you engage in avoidance um yeah or, or kind of you know broadly speaking what we call avoidance um, facing our fears like the single most robustly established finding in the entire field of psychotherapy research I'll say that again the single most <laughs> robustly established finding in the entire field of psychotherapy which, which you'd think hang on a minute everybody, we should probably know what this is like everyone should know what this is it's what we call exposure therapy right so like I like saying that because psychotherapists and clinical psychologists will all be nodding and going yeah like basically that is the most robustly established finding in the field. But the general public aren't told this, right? And, you know, kids aren't taught this at school. Exposure therapy, like, so we've known for well over half a century, like, from many, many, so much so that all researchers now just take this for granted, and it's used as a comparison for other things, that when you face your fears in a particular way, uh, progressively, systematically, and for prolonged periods, then typically your anxiety will naturally abate i.e. it wears off, it goes away. That's how we get over our fears. Even ancient authors know that. I think the Stoics knew that. Aesop um, writes about this in his fables, in the fable of the lion and the fox. He, he, he takes this for granted. He knows that if you repeatedly face your fears, your anxiety will tend to wear off. And yet many people don't realise that today. They, they avoid facing their fears and then their anxiety actually becomes worse as a, as a result. Yeah, and you wonder, I mean, why, if it seems so obvious in a sense that, that it works that way, why are we so bad at doing it? Like, I know myself, even like I take a few days off training, I come back, I'm like a wet blanket. Like, wow. <laughs> I have to force myself back into it, you know. There's a lot of resistance. I blame um, the parents. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Kind Government of, to start joking, but a little bit. Like, I blame the yeah. uh, society. But I do, in a way, it is partly down to our, our, our upbringing. Um, a good a classic example would be... Here's what I'll tell. I'll explain a little weird thing about uh, psychotherapy. So people used to believe that mental health problems were caused by childhood trauma. This is like an old quasi-Freudian idea that hung around for ages, right? It's still around so, a so lot, they would I think. think. Look, if you've got... A, yeah, like, and, and it's it's overly simplistic to say the least, right? It's usually not true. Like, so, and it leads to kind of serious problems in psychotherapy as well, because if you assume that someone must have a childhood trauma, then they can't remember one, then you'll make one up. Like, they, in therapy, yeah. you kind of go looking for, like, traumas that never exist and can end up fabricating. So that's why we get false memory syndrome and all those problems, like, that arose in the 80s. So that's a problem. So what they assume is that if you've got a dog phobia for instance you must have been attacked by a dog when you were little and that's why you've got a dog phobia now right it's the only logical explanation the therapist used to think but actually what we know is that children go through a natural developmental phase where they're frightened a dog's like a horse to a little kid to a two-year-old like it's the size bigger than the kid right if you if something if a horse ran at you with, and it had pointy teeth. Like, you know, you'd probably freak yeah. out a little bit, right? So kids naturally feel anxious around dogs at a particular age. The majority, or not all of them, but most of them do. It's normal. But what normally happens is their parents or other people around, other adults around them say, it's fine. 
Like, it's going to be okay. And they model, like, they exemplify calm behavior, what we call approach behavior, technically. So they'll pat the dog and stuff like that and encourage the kid, right? And then gradually the kid will imitate that, and they'll spend time around the dog, and they'll get used to it, and they'll over their anxieties. They grow out of it naturally through repeated approach behavior. Unless the parent is like, oh, he doesn't like dogs, keep it away from him, right? Yeah. And now mm. the parent is modeling avoidance behavior, maybe just trying to protect the kid because the kid's anxious, but by mm. kind of sheltering them too much, they potentially sensitize the kid. And that natural anxiety now will be reinforced and it will never, like, it potentially becomes permanent or, or long standing. So in adult life, it's not that something happened, a trauma happened that caused the anxiety. It's that the anxiety is kind of something we're naturally predisposed to, and it just never went away. Like, you know, we're normally cured of it through our parenting and the natural uh, process, or the course of events as we grow up. But some kids aren't because, you know, they're kept away from things. They're not exposed enough to the things that they're anxious about. And so they... Another example would be public speaking. Like, it's natural mm -hmm. to have a certain amount of social anxiety, but one reason that people still have that in adulthood is that they've lacked sufficient appropriate opportunities to get used to public speaking in, uh, in, a, in a conducive setting. Um, that's not always a solution, but like sometimes it's just lack of exposure that causes people to feel. And this is a problem nowadays with the internet and people spending less time actually interacting with each other. Now, like that lack of social exposure means that I, I think we're seeing more social anxiety among younger, the younger generation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I myself would have, I did a talk on Saturday actually on uh, mental health and social media, like on some of the research I'm doing. And I would have, I've done a lot of practice public speaking and stuff like that. But the only way I've been getting kind of past the initial hit of the nerves is that the more I practice it, the easier it gets. Like it just has to be kind of habituated and worn down. But you really have to put yourself in those situations. Um, I think for a lot of people now, there's yeah. just such a, there's so much room to not put yourself in difficulty that it's very tempting um, yeah. to kind of sashay well, that, out of this the is way. Kind of, this is the battle that's going on mm. in the background, right? We have more, like, uh, the forces of avoidance have more, like, weapons at their disposal now. So, like, we have more opportunities for avoidance, and it, it's... It's harder for us to kind of exhibit approach, like exposure uh, behavior that would just be normal um, to our uh, predecessors. There are, I, like, my specialism was in treating social anxiety when I was yeah. um, like younger, like, uh, previously. And social anxiety is slightly more complex than, like, a dog phobia or something. So when somebody has social anxiety, they're not, they're not really anxious about other people's faces. Like... They don't have a phobia for, like, you know, just for other people's food. There's an element of that, but actually more fundamental, it's more cognitive in nature. Um, people with social anxiety are more anxious about what other people think of them. We call it fear of negative evaluation. Like, mm. So it's more an anxiety about other people maybe thinking you're an idiot or other people not liking what you're saying or thinking you're incompetent or, or like something like that. So it's a little bit more in your head. Uh, social yep. anxiety and there's more anticipatory worry involved so it's got a slightly different structure but we have like a 90% success rate in clinical trials in treating like animal phobias like snake phobia and dog phobia and stuff like that yep. social anxiety is 75% so it's still like high very high um, but it's a little bit more complex so we have to usually use some more cognitive tricks just as an aside because I can tell people this in like 30 seconds what the research now shows is that one of the most important factors is, is, is eye contact um, or focus of attention would be a better way of putting it so when people one form of subtle avoidance is if you're giving a talk you would just kind of look at your shoes and you'd avoid looking at the audience and we know now that if you train people to pay more attention to the audience and also if they try and broaden the scope of their attention that seems mm. to be one of the most powerful things that we can combine with exposure in order to help with social anxiety in particular that's really interesting yeah andrew huberman that is american neuroscientist he's got a podcast and stuff you might have seen him um he talks about that the frame of whenever you have a big hit of adrenaline that your scope of attention narrows it's like looking at the world through a straw and that that panoramic yeah. vision actually has the opposite effect um i don't know about the neurochemistry behind it but like 
yeah, something he recommended. Mm. This is one of the main things we know about negative emotion in general, that um, a lot of uh, cognitive biases kick in, like many different cognitive biases. And we become poorer at problem solving and reasoning when we're highly emotional, like at least when we're very angry or very depressed or very anxious. And part of that is, number one, just like a, a narrowing of attention, this kind of tunnel vision. Um, and then also it does weird things to our, our kind of sense of time. And it does weird things to the way that we process information. We become very selective, um, like mm. we have selective hearing and selective vision and we select out particular details that, that can maintain our, our distress. So when you're really angry with somebody, you, 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 you go looking for more things to be angry about, basically. It's kind of mm. confirmation bias in a way. And you'll kind of ignore details that might balance it. So say somebody calls you an idiot, right? You know, you'll start looking for other things that they've done that you could take offence at. And maybe they just helped an old lady across the street. You're not interested in that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that potentially, if they think, well, they call me an idiot, but they also just helped my granny across the street. Like, that would kind of balance the scales out a little bit, you know, yeah. to some extent. Um, but when you're angry, you engage in this kind of selective thinking. And the Stoics think that's irrational, right? It's, it's a, actually, I like to push it a little bit further and say, you know, in court, you promise to, you swear to tell the truth, the whole mm. truth and nothing but the truth. Because a partial truth is a type of lie, right? Mm. If you leave out critical information that would change the meaning of what you're saying, that's a lie. We call that a lie of omission. Right, mm. and so when people are very angry or very anxious, they're committing a lie, many lies of omission, to themselves. Right, it's a form mm. of self-deceit, if you like. I think that's the strongest way of putting it. But that's the, the the those are the knots we tie ourselves in. And the Stoics were smart enough to know that, and so they think every day. Marcus Aurelius says every day he would train himself to systematically expand the chronological and temporal scope of his attention in an exercise that modern scholars call the view from above. And he does related exercises to broaden his attention. That's something, that exact scale is something that I've taken from Stoicism and CBT that I think I, I've been trying to practice habitually but never knew before. I, I heard you say once that philosophy is about learning to talk to yourself properly and to have this kind of... Mm -hmm you know, when you're making that kind of a judgment to go, well, you know, what am I ignoring? What else is here? And to kind of have that discipline to start to factor in the other stuff. Um, is that a fair categorization, do you think? I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, like this is very, like it's a theme in stoicism, like to to be, in a way, this sounds like an oversimplification, but in a, in a sense, like, Stoicism orients itself around the truth. Like the Stoics are, are philosophers and they want to get to the truth. They want to achieve wisdom. Mm. Wisdom consists in grasping the truth very clearly and very firmly. How do you do that? By avoiding selective thinking. It's a type of lie or deceit. Like, so the, the totality is the reality. Like the whole context is the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth, right? And so part of it is the Stoics just think, you, if we want to be philosophers, if we want to love the truth, we need to look at the bigger picture. Is there an element of balancing as well? Because if you think about, like, say there's an infinite number of facts that you can see about the person, there there might be, there's too many things to consider almost. So you have to kind of make, like, I'm thinking about the values of wisdom, courage, temperance, you know, justice. Like, do they simplify in a sense the, or they say what's important? what you should be prioritizing in your analysis. Perhaps they do. Perhaps they do. I think, so you might say actually about Stoicism in general, like the Stoics want us, in a sense, the Stoics want us to be godlike in their theology. They think Zeus is this being that comprehends the whole of space and time. He's omniscient. He knows, he knows everything. So if you wanted to be, like the most perfect being is, is God or Zeus. If you, if you want to perfect yourself, you kind of get closer to that. So you try and imagine what it would be like to be omniscient, to, to see the whole of space and time. Now, you might say, hang on, Donald, that sounds a bit of a tall order. 
Right. I've only I've I've not had my first coffee of the day yet. I don't know. I don't know. If contemplating the whole of space and time is like you know maybe too, a big. It's quite a big ask, right? As we say today. But I don't think like we have to do it literally. I think what the main thing is just that we at least have the notion that there is a a more expansive perspective. Like even though we go, there's a difference between kind of realizing that we're only looking at a fragment of the picture and maybe having at least a rough idea that there's more and just kind of ignoring everything else completely and focusing in on that. So that applies to an individual person as well. Yeah, we don't know their whole life story. I'll, get, I'll give you a, a better way of explaining that actually. As a therapist or a counsellor, um, I used to have to work with young offenders and, uh, you know, some of them had committed crimes, they'd done terrible uh, crimes, terrible things. Um, but I kind of empathised with them more because I would interview them and talk to them and understood what they were thinking and feeling, what their daily routine was like and what you know some of their upbringing had been like and stuff like that. So uh, I didn't feel angry. I kind of naturally um, saw how they got there. Like What they did was still terrible, but I can see the path that kind of led them to doing it. So I didn't yeah. just kind of feel the same anger that someone else might when they... They contemplated what they did. Now, I might then see another young person who does something um, similar, right? I haven't interviewed them. I don't know mm. what their upbringing was like. I don't know what their daily routine is like. But still, I know enough to think I'm guessing it's similar. Like, I don't know for sure. But I'm able at least to look at them and think, it's possible that they also have similar... Maybe they've also got parents who are uh, criminals or uh, like are abusing drugs or, you know, maybe they've also got a very bleak prospects for the future and that's kind of affecting, like, their behaviour and so on. I don't know for sure. But so even though I can't put myself in their shoes and I don't actually know all of the details, I've kind of got this rough frame of reference still that's enough for me to kind of broaden my perspective a bit like, and just see beyond the kind of immediate uh, behaviour that they're engaged in. Does that does that make sense? It's just that sometimes yeah. it's just the thought that kind of, like the idea. Absolutely. And kind of caricaturing, that's something I've taken from Stoicism as well, is not trying to guess, you know, what the other person thinks or what they're kind of, you know, not making up this picture of them in my mind and then getting annoyed about it because there's a lot of stuff I don't know. So if I'm jumping to conclusions or assuming things, I'm going to upset myself <laughs> rather than just, you know, Socratic, yeah. I don't know. That's then. That's also one of the things that Marcus Aurelius mentioned. Maybe what I just said sounds like the opposite of that, but I should qualify it by saying, like, I can imagine that there might be possible explanations for the behaviour, and yeah, I can imagine yeah. that, there might, that maybe there are multiple possible explanations, so I can suspend judgement to some extent and think, maybe they're like yeah, the clients yeah. I've seen, but I've seen lots of different clients who have different backgrounds, so there's mm. a whole bunch of different potential stories I can imagine there, rather than just trying to jumping to a conclusion. So we know, for example, when people are angry, that they tend to have be overconfident in their interpretation of other people's motives. I know what kind of guy he is. Like I know exactly what he's trying to do. They'll say, and often yeah, they're wrong, yeah. right? Mm. But they sound as if they're absolutely certain, right? Whereas if you're used to interviewing people like that, you, you naturally have more cognitive flexibility. You'll think, I don't know, maybe he's like this guy or he's like more like that guy. Like, I can see different possibilities here. And that flexibility uh, tends to make people less angry, less anxious about stuff. Like it kind of moderates their emotional response, but it also makes them better at problem solving. So when you've got tunnel vision and you're locked into a particular way of looking at things, it, it's kind of harder to figure out ways to deal with people, interact with them or to solve problems. Whereas if you look at someone and you think, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's that, I can see a few different perspectives. People who, who have that more flexible perspective tend to be better at handling situations. They're, they're typically, and that means they're typically more emotionally resilient, if you like. Yeah, that seems to me to be a lot of what wisdom, I mean, that the, this kind of like metacognition that you can switch between frames, you're not like married to one and kind of stuck in it. Um, and yeah. that there's, yeah, an ability to kind of cycle between lenses, I suppose. 
Um, yeah, metacognition. Yeah, it's like normal cognition, only better. Yeah, it sounds like, way fancier. It's like metacognitions. Uh, <laughs> sounds a lot cooler, right? Yeah. I mean, for lo- in a sense, philosophy should be about metacognition. You know, mm. philosophy kind of is thinking about thinking in a way. And yeah. metacognition is our ability to notice our thoughts or beliefs about our thoughts and beliefs. Mm. Um, I mean, a, a really simple example would be if somebody's worrying a lot, like we know from research that people who suffer from pathological worrying tend to believe that their worrying is uncontrollable. And, but often they're mistaken about that, actually. They can control it like, uh, quite, uh, using quite simple strategies, right? So they have a mistaken, a false belief, a mistaken belief about the nature of their own thinking. Like, and that, of course, is going to really tie you in knots if you're not careful. Mm. Yeah, there was a quote I, one of your, on your Twitter. I remember you said um, that one of the main difficulties uh, facing a neurotic person is how to tell the difference between rational problem solving and irrational rumination. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting because, like, yeah. for, I'd say, 98% of people, that, like, they can't tell the difference between that. Like, you think you're doing the work, but it's actually might be going the opposite way. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, uh, there are many actual... Car- we do this in therapy. Like, cognitive therapists love doing two-column techniques on a flip chart. Like, and one of the, one version of that is to say what's rational problem solving, what's worrying or irrational, dysfunctional problem solving. And to get the client to kind of think through what the signs might be of the difference between them. Like, so the things that we kind of know from research and also things that clients will, will tend to identify themselves. There's, I don't know, there's probably like half a dozen or more kind of common things. One of them is that, generally speaking, worrying is more is obviously more circular and it, 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 often it kind of goes on a lot longer in a, a sort of unproductive way. So if you're thinking about something for ages and it's just kind of going round and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere, that might be a clue that it's worrying rather than... Uh, rational problem solving, it, even if it gets stuck, like it might go on for like a certain amount of time and then you think, I'm not making any progress here, but then usually you'll stop and think, okay, I'll need to yeah. go away and come back to this later or something like that. Or I'll just find out some more information and come back to it. But you won't usually just keep going round and round and round and round. And uh, worrying tends to also overestimate uh, probability and severity of threat and to underestimate coping ability. Worrying tends to be more abstract. It's characterised by more unanswered questions. Like problem solving is more concrete usually. Like um, it's more divided into steps and stages normally. Like. Um, it has questions, but usually there's more focus and answers to them rather than just a string of questions that keep going around. Uh, what if this happens? What am I going to do about it? How will I cope? Is more like worrying. Mm. Whereas problem solving is like, what if this happens? Well, I guess I could do this or I could do that. Maybe I could do this and then do that. Is more like rational problem solving, basically. So this sounds like kind of you'd explain something, you know, a bit childish in a way. But it, do you just you what you just said is accurate that people confuse these two things and 100% so I do as real. well I mean, if you saw someone else I still have it. to do it I still have to do it's it now it's always worrying. easier if you see someone else mm. yeah yeah we all do because you kind of we're not a good judge of our own behaviour it's much easier for someone else looking at us to say you're obviously just worrying about this <laughs> and uh, clients in therapy will often say I, I thought I was trying to solve a problem or I thought I was preparing I was kind of preparing for this presentation that I had to give. Like, and then you say, well, wait, how, how were you preparing? What were you actually doing in your head and stuff? I was just kind of you know, going around in circles thinking, what if this happens? What if that happens? That's not preparing. That's what, that's, that's what we call worrying like, about something. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. Worry. So you were worrying for like a week, like, like all day, every day before this presentation. All right. Like, do you think it might be worth uh, changing that? What would be the consequences of doing that uh, every time you're facing one of these situations? Not good. <laughs> Maybe it's worth changing it then. What would be better yeah. if you did the, this or that instead? Um, noticing that when we're doing these things, the Stoics say, Epictetus tells his students they should notice when they're doing something like that and then postpone mm. it and come back to it later, which is similar to a strategy that we teach clients today called worry postponement. 
I still use that after I, I learned it from you. Um, I find it so helpful, to be honest, to say, you know, this isn't going anywhere. I'll think about it when I sit down at, you know, nine o'clock after my breakfast and address it then rather than just... Just when you're worrying about stuff, yeah. I guess the, there's a deeper insight here, which is like you could... And again, it seems like it's just stating something obvious, but often the people don't really think through the implications of things that are kind of obvious. So one of them is... Your brain goes into different modes of functioning, right? So when you're anxious or angry or depressed, you, your brain is working differently, right? So when you're really worried and you're anxious, your your brain's in a different mode, and part and parcel of that is that it's exhibiting biases. So you're more likely to overestimate threat, you're more likely to underestimate coping ability, you're more likely to think in sweeping generalizations. You're more likely to mm. jump to conclusions prematurely. Like, so you're not really in a... It would be like saying you're really tired and you can't think straight. Mm. And you're really anxious. You can't really think straight in the same way. And so the weird irony about that is worrying involves a lot of high-level strategic conscious thinking and planning. You're totally not in the right frame of mind to do that, right? So it makes more sense to wait until the anxiety is naturally worn off, which it will do over time, and then go, okay, like, I'm not freaking out now. Maybe I should sit down and think through this problem, like, and I can do it in a more yeah. balanced way with a bit more self-awareness than I, I was able to do earlier. Mm. Yeah, and it's so, again, it comes back to this kind of self-talk, this ability to, you know, have a good inner narrator with a level of awareness of what's going on and step away from it. I mean, it seems like something you should teach in, like, school. Like, it, there's so many people suffering because they can't do this. And yet there seems to be no real, know. you know, push for it to be a thing, <laughs> except in weird bits of the internet. I do wonder why that is, because people have said that since ancient Greece, right? That, you know, <laughs> yeah. this kind of thing, of, we should teach this to kids, has been yeah. a thing that people have said throughout the ages. And so why don't we teach stuff to kids? Like, and I do, I do well, like, I think the obvious answer is that if we taught kids how to think for themselves and to question stuff more and, you know, to be able to master their emotions and not be perturbed by them, like, I really wonder whether the education system would collapse. Like, because <laughs> yeah. we'd have yeah. loads of little Socrateses like, I mean, that maybe the moral of the story is that with Socrates, like, they couldn't... Socrates was basically a student. He would turn up to the the sophists' lectures. Like, they were, like, teachers. You know, they would lecture in a kind of conventional style, and the students were meant to kind of, like, sit there and listen. And Socrates went along as a student, in a sense, and he would ask questions. And he was incredibly disruptive. Like, they, he, they, he, they found him really annoying. Like, he calls himself this, a gadfly. Um, and I do wonder, like, yeah, why aren't we all more like Socrates and ask questions and think critically and not allow our emotions to cloud our judgment? Because teachers hate that. Yeah, like, disturbing a, the a lot of teachers like traditionally hate it because, it, in a way, it means there are no teachers. Like, it would be completely student-centered, and the teachers would lose their status and authority, and the, the whole conventional system of education is based on that. So, like, these institutions, I think, are, are already have really fundamentally baked into them this hierarchy that mm. inherently um, is antagonistic to encouraging philosophical uh, and critical thinking in the students. So like, interesting. And that's Absolutely. why we, for two and a half thousand years, like, we haven't solved this problem. Like, you're not the first person to think of this. Like, <laughs> I know, you know, I thought it was a great idea. Like, hang on a second. <laughs> a great, why don't we teach kids? Teach kids to control their emotions and think this? more rather. We're not an awesome idea. Like, we've been saying this for two and a half thousand years and nobody never yeah. does it. Like, because then the teachers find it too annoying. Basically. <laughs> Have you seen the documentary Young Plato? I haven't seen it yet. I know of it. I um, I spoke briefly uh, to the to the head teacher that's in it. Uh, we were going to Kevin uh, like, McAreevy. It's in Belfast, actually. Back. Yeah, um, just yeah. down from me. That's right. Uh, I've forgotten about that. Like, yeah, that's a very interesting experiment. You should interview him. I'd like to speak to him about that. 
100% man the documentary is really 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 interesting um, very heart wrenching I mean that particular yeah. area in Belfast is like overrun with drugs paramilitaries it's a rough neighbourhood man um, so him doing that kind of work there and having success is uh, very impressive really um, and I think yeah it's from the Philosophy Foundation you probably know them who do um, what is it 5E or 5-4E or something Um but yeah, teaching philosophy to Some kids. Trailer. Like I'd like to mm. I'd definitely like to see it. Like I think that would be awesome. And you know, mm. like so, like Socrates lived during a um a time, the Peloponnesian War, right? Yeah. When there there was multiple like civil wars in uh Athens. And in some ways it's kinda like comparable. He lived through a period yeah. of political mm. and social turmoil. Um yeah. and where there was you know, like like violence on the streets and stuff like that, and um, you know, like not kind of, I guess not a drug problem, but maybe maybe in a sense, like I think people sometimes there's some hints that in ancient Athens people were abusing alcohol and getting any problems as, as a result. There may even have been other drugs involved, possibly, um, but certainly there was a lot of political tension. Like there were factions like dividing the city. Like there was violence in the streets. Like, and Socrates is kind of caught up in the middle of this, and he had to really figure out, you know. So on the one hand, he wanted to question uh, ethics and politics and the society that he lived in. On the other hand, he talks in the, the apology and the, his defence speech about how if he did this too openly, he would have not lasted five minutes. You know, mm. like they would uh, have executed him much sooner. So he, this is one of the challenges that he faced. Is like how could he kind of walk this line of kind of challenging things, but uh, you know, in a, a way that he could potentially get away with doing until eventually they made him drink hemlock, obviously. Yeah, and eventually, yeah, killed him. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. yeah, and there's an element of it, Socrates that I love, which is that he's very focused on transformative wisdom. Like he doesn't want stuff that's impractical in a sense, um, and I think that's what's missing with a lot of philosophy is that it doesn't really help you know yourself more or improve your life, which I think is a mistake. He used to quote this passage from Homer, where he said what differentiated him, Socrates used to say what differentiated him from previous, there were philosophers before Socrates, and Socrates Mm. used to say what the difference between him and the, the previous philosophers, we call them the natural philosophers, is that he, quoting Homer, um, dealt with good and evil um, in one's own home, and what he means is like you know like questions of daily life, like practical stuff, like how you actually live your life. Whereas they were more concerned about astronomy and things like that, and kind of metaphysics and stuff. Like he said, I'm more concerned about you know what's good and bad and that goes on in your own household, like right in you know right in front of you in daily life. Some people say, put it very simply in the ancient world, they, they would sometimes say it was Socrates really that in, uh, in, introduced ethics or like the focus mm. on applied ethics anyway in ancient philosophy. Yeah. He kind of brought philosophy down from the heavens and made it more practical. Um, mm. And the Stoics took that aspect to Socrates and they really focused on it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I think is so needed. I mean, with the social media thing, I was going to say earlier, like there's a kind of a conspiracy theory with social media that the the algorithm, because of what you pointed out, when we're angry, when we're anxious, we're not thinking properly. We're not really thinking ahead. Um, we're not kind of addressing our goals. Oh, has that dropped out? Oh, sorry, the sound just went there. Um, we're not really thinking ahead. So, you know, in some sense, it works better for the algorithms if we're more distressed, if we're constantly put into this high emotion state yeah. we're more malleable yeah. we're more likely to we're, play if ball. we're stupid and yeah, if we're stupid and gullible like yeah. that works better like mm. in terms of the system that <laughs> yeah. they've created uh how weird is that all right um <laughs> what a coincidence so they've they've yeah. created yeah this the system like the functions if it if really the commodity is our attention like how much attention we pay to things in part like we pay more attention to things that were frighten us or that we're angry about so like it sets like it kind of provokes fear and anger in a really shameless and transparent manner sometimes but also probably in in more subtle ways the news media i can in america it's it's worse than i think it is in the uk in the sense that you can see all the headlines from cnn or fox and it'll say things like 
Tucker Carlson like is aghast at this or Don Lemon shocked to discover that mm. and I kind of think I don't really need them to be shocked or aghast on my behalf <laughs> yeah, thanks very I much don't. you know <laughs> I this is pretty transparent that you guys are just trying to freak me out here about something that really isn't that shocking like I kind of knew already or like does it seems kind of like it happens all the time but they're, they're like very shamelessly just trying to kind of like whip people like the yeah. ancient sophists did in Athens as well and philosophy is there to protect us against it but philosophy yeah, requires yeah. something it's like it's it, you know it doesn't come with batteries like you mm. uh, philosophy won't do anything <laughs> unless you inject a certain amount of effort and discipline and it's like you have to actually apply it like yeah. you know books and philosophy like you know books and philosophy they come without batteries included you know you need to put the energy in like you need to actually make a conscious effort like mm. and that's what's required like and then philosophy can help you become resilient can help you see through some of this stuff um that's very much what it was about in the ancient world we, we're not doing that at all today um no. you know i think people read books on stoicism and they're quite passive consumers of it in some ways but the, the stoics wanted does also to learn critical thinking they taught logic and by ancient logic, they don't mean propositional calculus like we have today. They just meant really debating and understanding typical arguments and practicing responding to them. So to study ancient logic was to kind of get really good at understanding. Like we said earlier, what's the difference between worrying and rational problem solving? Like to study ancient logic, you'd also usually study rhetoric. So logic aims to get at truth. Rhetoric kind of aims to, to conceal the truth or uh, manipulate people. Like you'd un, you're learning the difference between what's rational thinking and irrational thinking, and get better at spotting good arguments and bad arguments, differentiating the two. And I, I think even people often when they read stoicism and stuff, they're not very good at that today. You see them mm. people still on the internet using. You know, like, for instance, I think a lot of people know what the ad hominem fallacy is, right? Like, uh, you learn these fallacies in philosophy. The ad hominem is where somebody says one plus one equals two, and another person said, yeah, but you're a Nazi, right? So you would say that. <laughs> like, and they, they try to undermine the credibility mm. of something that's been yep. said by attacking the character, usually by calling them a paedophile or a Nazi or something like that, right? One of the like, other. Yeah. That happens all over the internet all the time, right? Um, and now in America, it's just like, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and that's enough. Like, ah, he's a Republican, I don't believe anything those guys say. Like, so the thing he said is false because you don't agree with his values or whatever. That doesn't make any sense at all. So that's a fallacy, right? It's not rational to think that way. Um, but the internet's awash with it. Like, and so one of the first things the Stoics would teach us is to stop, stop doing that. Like, that's stupidity in, you know, in the flesh. You know, like that, that stupid thinking. Like, and rational thinking would be, it doesn't matter if the guy holds different political views or whatever, or even if he's a horrible person, the thing that he said, well, maybe one plus one is two. Like, maybe the way to check whether that's true or false like, would be to evaluate it rationally in its own terms rather than shifting the focus onto the personality of the guy that said it. It doesn't make any sense because maybe somebody who holds the same values as us could also have said that. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's almost like you, these are childlike things. Like, in a way, we all... Mm. It's a formalisation of things that we should learn naturally when we're growing up as children. But it, we forget this stuff when we get angry and, and frightened and the media like are kind of feeding off that. And we, we start to think like children and we start to think in a, a kind of simplistic and a childish way, in a way that we sort of already know is irrational. Um, but the Stoics wanted us to train ourselves to be more self-aware when it comes to these kind of things. And for sure, we need that on the, when we're dealing with the, the, the internet but also that you know like the news media and everything today yeah the endless kind of media cycle um and i'd say do you think the stoics would say that you know what you do on the internet is still a reflection of your character like i know marcus Aurelius says like you know live without walls in a sense like 
be inside and outside yeah. the same, have the integrity. Um, because a lot of people seem to think it's one world and another world. But I don't think it works that way, really. I don't know. It's starting stories, like a reflection of your, your character. I think it's weird. Mm. The, the anonymity that people feel that they have, I think, is also a kind of an illusion. So, mm. like, of course, people, like, um, say things that are kind of like offensive or or stupid or they troll people or whatever on the internet. One of the things that always surprises me about this is I noticed this very early on in the kind of early days of Facebook. I saw a guy spouting a load of really kind of offensive, sort of racist, kind of xenophobic stuff on, on the internet, on Facebook. And he was a guy that I knew who was a, a, a psychotherapist. And, um, like, I kind of thought, does he know that this is public and that, you know, his clients would potentially... Re- like, I'm, pr- I'm f- absolutely certain that he wouldn't say that in front of a bunch of prospective clients, Right. But he's yeah. just put it all over the internet, and his name's attached to it. His profile, like he, he is doing it in public. So the weird thing is, I think people forget that it's in public, and they feel as if they're behind the veil, when in, mm-hmm. in many cases, often they're not. Um, and yeah. you know, potential employers or clients might be reading crazy stuff that they're posting online. Um, Again, I think it's like a narrowing of focus. Like they're not. Yeah. I don't know who they think they're talking to. I feel like it's like <laughs> a narcissistic look. Like they yeah. feel as if they're just talking to themselves, mm-hmm. right? So I I don't think they're kind of visualizing that they might be talking to an old lady or some foreign students in their class or prospective clients like that come from the, the other side of the world or whatever i'm sure they wouldn't be acting that way if that's who they thought they were talking to face to face but it potentially is they're they're talking to yeah again i think it's this thinking through of the consequences or thinking through of you know what might happen and where you know where this could possibly go but um i think it's a very interesting area i'm looking forward to getting you know yeah it's pretty short in supply these days but uh we could do with some classes on it probably I think so. I think, um, but you can train yourself to some extent to be more self-aware, to gain what we sometimes call metacognitive awareness, actually, that you, mm-hmm. you kind of alluded to earlier. And, you know, practice makes perfect in, in this regard as well. And if you, you, you can work on observing your behavior and noticing your own thoughts and feelings and how they interact. And, you know, it's like practicing mindfulness, it's basically. And, uh, it, you know, like anything else, it's like building up a muscle or whatever, and it, like, it can become a habit. Mm. Is there any stoic exercises, just to finish, that you'd recommend for metacognitive awareness or any that you can think of? Yeah. I think um, one of the things that the stoics do is at the end of each day, they review their behavior and they ask themselves uh, three questions. What did I do well? What did I do badly? And what could I do differently next time? And I think if you know that you're going to review your behavior and your thoughts and so on at the end of the day, then it kind of potentially makes you more self-aware because you're accountable to somebody. And another stoic technique that's kind of similar to that, that, that kind of ties in with it, is to imagine that you're being observed by somebody that is wise so you, you, this is an old cognitive therapy technique, like, or it could be like a panel of enlightened sages. So next time you're on Twitter, you know, you could even have like a, you have like a little picture and put it behind your desk, and imagine that as you're kind of like on Twitter or whatever, you're like, you know, you're, you're being observed by Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and all that, and like, would you still send that tweet, like, if you knew that they were watching you, you know, not because you feel bad, but but, but you think. Does it highlight the fact that you already know that what you're doing is dumb? I, you know, and you thought, I, I guess what I'm doing is stupid and intemperate and stuff like that. And like, yeah, they, those guys would tell me that, wouldn't they? Like, then maybe that makes you come self-aware and pause. But we need to create like cues and reminders in our environment. So like, literally, mm-hmm. sometimes people find it useful to put a, a picture next to their computer or something like that to, to remind yeah. them. Mm. we could have one of those like little paper clips to remember that they had in the old computers of like Socrates or Marcus Aurelius or something that just says hey don't post that stupid thing 
you're going to get sacked from your job. I think also I'm a big believer in tattooing. Like, I think yeah. we should get some modern self-help gurus and just there must be a way to coerce them legally into allowing us just mm. to tattoo things on their forehead. Like, <laughs> so we can so remember it. <laughs> we, we should just get... Yeah, so like they're, when they're saying, kind of giving bad psychological advice, you should just have tattooed on the forehead, like from Epictetus, it's not things that upset you, but rather your opinions yeah. about them. And if that was on, like, I, news reporters, like if it was on Tucker Carlson's forehead, like, or John Peterson's forehead, or Joe Rogan's forehead, or Don Lemon's forehead, like, I feel then it would act as a useful reminder, and that would be, uh, have some potentially beneficial uh, effect for society. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if the legal constraints will quite get it done, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Thanks again, Donald, for this conversation, yeah. and I'll put the link to Verismus, the Stoic philosophy pleasure. of Marcus Aurelius. Awesome. I encourage everybody to check it out. I'm going to get my own copy of it as well, so I have one for the house, because it's sick. So thanks again. Awesome. Awesome. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Donald. I certainly did. Um, I really recommend checking out his videos online, his books, if you're interested in learning more on the topics, and of course, Verismus, which is an essential for anybody that likes Stoicism and the life of Marcus Aurelius. And particularly, you know, ancient Roman history and wants to learn a bit more about it in a slightly different way. Highly recommend checking it out. Um, if you like the content, definitely subscribe to my Substack, mahanmccann.substack.com, uh, where I'm sending out weekly essays and fortnightly podcasts. Boom!